You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. and worship team, those are important words, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. It's been a difficult week. Hello, by the way, Ricky and April. Uh, If you're not being tended to by doctors, they said they would be joining us online today. Um, Ralph Nichols lost his sister Kathy this week. A lot of tough things. So be, be praying and just thanking the Lord for his mercy and his goodness. Uh, and he is good to us no matter what. No matter what. Well, uh, I wanted to mention just briefly again in case you weren't here in time. If this is your first time visiting, you were here before anybody else most likely. But if you've been coming a while and you have forgotten, we're going to have our Grace Connection class this weekend uh, at 9 o'clock on Saturday morning from 9 to noon, we have child care. And then from 9.30 to 10.30 on Sunday morning. How would you say, just after we've talked about it, it's been a difficult week for some, but how would you say that life has treated you? Would you say like King David in Psalm 16, the lines have fallen For me, in pleasant places. Or would you align more closely with Isaiah who said after he saw the Lord, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, Isaiah was referring to his own sinfulness before the Lord. But most of us, if most of us, when we say, Woe is me, we have poor me more in mind. Fortunately, the Lord not only allows woe is me moments, but he gives us language to express our heartaches before him. As far as I know, the Bible is the only religious writings of any religion that allows the people who serve their God to complain to him. Why do you think That is, why do you think the language of lament is prominent in the Old Testament and finds its way even into the New Testament at times as well? Could it be that since the fall, life on this side of eternity is not designed to meet our deepest needs and desires? Now, there are many, many blessings that the Lord gives to us day in and day out, but the deepest Desires of our heart can only be met in him, in a relationship with him. That is God's job, to meet those desires at that level. How are we supposed to process a world that cares little for God and live a life, live in this life in which tragedy strikes without warning? We'll find a number of these answers beginning In the book of Habakkuk, which reads as much like a lament from the Psalms as it does a prophecy written to the people of God, warning of impending judgment on the land. 
Habakkuk, this little book of Habakkuk. Now, this is going to be tough because most English speakers in America say Habakkuk. Allison says Habakkuk. And Alistair Alistair Begg says Habakkuk. So, it's no telling what I will say. Someone told me this week, I can't remember who, that they had heard if you say tobacco, then you get Habakkuk. But you, you got to put the cook on the end, Habakkuk. So, okay, well, I think I'll sit down now. <laughs> Habakkuk is a dialogue between a man and Yahweh. And although the people of Judah were not directly addressed by the prophet, anyone who heard or read these words understood judgment is coming. We should repent, prepare for judgment. A judgment, by the way, that would affect every individual of the nation. So we're going to spend about four weeks in Habakkuk. That is the plan. And then we're going to move on to the book of Daniel. And from Daniel, we will begin a series in the book of Revelation with a few breaks here and there. By the way, let me just say it now. I'll say it many times through the coming months. Uh, Revelation. How many revelations? One revelation. It's the revelation of John given to him by Jesus, but it's really the revelation of Jesus, him making himself known to us. We'll talk about that as we go. We're going to be delving deep into the doctrine of eschatology, which a simple explanation is the study of last things. I say the study of last things is a simple explanation because eschatology includes much more than just the events surrounding Jesus' return. It seeks to understand the biblical teaching about death and resurrection and the intermediate state or the state between the time that we die and the final resurrection. And, and, it, and it thinks about heaven and hell. It, it, it involves matters concerning heaven and hell. It's also the breaking in of the kingdom of God into The world, that happened when Jesus came. God already broke into the world, but especially when Jesus came, the kingdom of God had begun. We're already in the last days, and we continue the work of Jesus by the power and the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You can see that eschatology covers a lot of territory, and we haven't even begun to think about premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, Uh, much less about beliefs about the rapture and the seven-year tribulation, including whether there will be a tribulation or not. And if so, if there's a literal seven-year tribulation, will there be pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, post-trib rapture? All these possible interpretations of Scripture point to the second coming of Christ or Jesus' second advent. Why does it matter? Because what we believe about last things will influence the way that we live. And our eschatology really informs a lot more of our beliefs about Scripture. We'll think about all these issues and more over the next week. Now, I just want to encourage you, hang in there. There is no way to say everything that needs to be said in one, two, three, 
five, ten weeks. So it's going to take a while. In fact, I think we're going to be in these three books for about a year. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But I think it's going to take somewhere in that neighborhood. We, we cannot study these books of the Bible without thinking about a theology of end time. So it, there is much to cover and much to learn in the coming year for all of us, self-included. And I'm going to guess that all of us are going to tweak or adjust our thinking about end times, self-included, just a little bit. You may think, oh, of course we know how it's going to happen. It's going to happen just like this, and the Lord is going to come back, and I can tell you approximately when he's going to come back, how he's going to come back, what's going to happen in the world. You can't believe how many different views there are. And the majority opinion in America now is not the majority opinion of the church over the years. So there's a lot for us to think about and learn. And we'll hopefully all have a better understanding by the time we get to the end. So we're going to begin our study this morning in the book of Habakkuk. Bert Wallace's excellent message of the, on the Old Testament books this past week on First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles have set the table beautifully for our time in Habakkuk. Allison and I watched the sermon on uh, online on the Grace website, and I still have no idea how you covered that much material in that short of time and organized it so perfectly and beautifully in one sermon. Not only did Professor Wallace's message on, uh, uh, on the kings prepare us for Habakkuk, but it also is perfectly placed for your reading through the Bible this year. I know a lot of you are reading through the Bible, and when you get to the kings, it's like, eh, I just can't keep up with it. If you were not here last week, or even if you were, you might want to do this. But if you were not here, I would encourage you strongly to go, go to the website and watch the message that includes the PowerPoints, and try to get a little bit of an understanding. Open your study Bible, just think about the kings for a bit, and it helps you to understand the setting for Habakkuk. You need the PowerPoint presentation. In fact, as soon as one of the guys that know what they're doing, Ricky or, or David, get back, I'll have them post it to Faith Life, post the slides so that you can have those excellent study helps. As for Habakkuk, not much is known about the prophet whose writings bear his name. I wonder if that's intentional. I mean, that's the case with a few of the writers of Scripture. Most writers we know a little bit more than we know about Habakkuk. But it just emphasizes how important the message is and how much more important the message is than the messenger. Habakkuk is one of 12 minor prophets. Now, there are five major prophets, 12 minor prophets. It's not that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are more important than Amos, Obadiah, Zechariah, and Habakkuk. But the de designation comes primarily from the length of the writings. For instance, though Daniel has 12 chapters and Zechariah has 14 chapters... There are almost double the words in Daniel to Zechariah. I've often thought that if there is a Bible verse that you think, man, I wish I knew where that verse 
is located, it's probably found in the Minor Prophets. Just think about these verses from Habakkuk that we're going to be considering in these next four weeks, today and the next three weeks. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by his faith. That's the basis of this study, and we'll talk more about it later. Then verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then 2.20, you've known this verse, haven't you? But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. What you haven't considered is that verse in context, which we will be able to do. Not next week, but the week after. And then these painfully beautiful or beautifully painful words from Habakkuk at the end of the book. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. Since Habakkuk is a relatively short book, and since it is the beginning of our three-book study on eschatology, I'll be introducing the book and the series of books really all through this book of Habakkuk. To place this prophecy in its context, it's important to note uh, that there were three deportations from Judah to Babylon. The Babylonians came in. They said, we're going to take some of your people to Babylon. They marched them to Babylon. Three different deportations. Now, there are different uh, uh, opinions about when that began, but I'm just choosing this one. 605 B.C., it's in the ESV study Bible, and I, I have no reason to not go with these dates as opposed to other dates that I've seen. 605 B.C. was the first deportation. Second, 597 was the second deportation to Babylon. And then 586 B.C., destruction of Jerusalem and final deportation. Now, when you think about being moved from one country to another, we tend to think, oh, i got to buy a house in another state. Come on. That's not what this deportation was. We'll talk about it next week. I'll just say this. It's usually a death sentence for the nation, not an individual. It's bad news. So you've got these three deportations. Um, Habakkuk likely wrote his prophecies somewhere between 630 to 610 B.C., somewhere 10 to 15 years before the first deportation. Although some people think that this prophecy spans a period of time from somewhere around 610 to 595. It's just referring to a whole period of time rather than just uh, was written in a couple of days and then put out there for the people to to. To read, Judah, 
leading up to this time, Judah had been oppressed for by Assyria for nearly a hundred years. Not the kind of oppression that Babylon would put on them, but Assyria to their north, north of the nation of Israel, had it, uh, placed taxes on them. They had demanded things of them. It was a pretty tough time for them for a hundred years. And then in 612 B.C., Babylon defeated Assyria. And, and, and the Judeans were thinking, happy days are here again. You know, it's good times now. We are. But look at the dates. 612, 605. Daniel, several others were taken to Babylon. We can be so short-sighted. What do the warnings and the timeline of Habakkuk have to do with us? Well, next Sunday morning, I'm going to talk about patterns that we find in Scripture that show up in our lives and in the church and in nations and in history. But we have had enough introduction for the day. We need to get to our text, Habakkuk 1, 1 through 11. But of course, I have to give context for that. In Habakkuk 1, 1 through 4, the prophet is going to ask a very pointed question of Yahweh. A question that feels more like an accusation than a request for an explanation of God's ways. Yahweh does not rebuke his prophet for his complaint, but he responds with, to Habakkuk's thinking anyway, a shocking answer in verses 5 through 11 of our text. We're going to begin our time with Habakkuk's lament in verses 1 through 4. And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. We're told at the beginning of Habakkuk's writing that what follows is an oracle that the prophet saw. Now some of your translations will say that this is the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw Indeed, burden is a good translation for the exchange between Habakkuk and Yahweh because life is difficult. It's a burden for someone who sees what nobody else sees. A burden for one who is thought to be crazy and extreme and killing the vibe in the land. The people of Judah were willfully unaware of the danger that was before them. 
Time and again, they had failed to heed the words of earlier prophets and then to turn away from their sin. Even Habakkuk, when he began his complaint, was utterly unaware of the coming judgment. To begin with, the prophet asked, How long, O Lord, are you going to make me cry out to you? I see violence in the land, and I cry to you, but it's as if you don't see You don't care. I look at our land and I see the injustices and turmoil and ungodliness that leads to violence. Why will you not deliver us from ourselves? Why will you not turn the hearts of the people back to yourself? Why will you not save us? Why will you not listen to me? The Hebrew understanding of listening is to hear And to act. That's why Jesus so often said, let him who has ears to hear, hear. Or let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And implied, let him act in response to my words. Habakkuk is turning the tables on God and practically accusing him of not following his own commands. God knew that violence was afoot among his people, but he did not act in what Habakkuk thought was a righteous manner. You ever felt like that? I imagine some of you have wondered, where's God in your pain? Where is God in this suffering? God, if you really cared, you would do something about my circumstances. Now, that prayer doesn't seem to be as noble as Habakkuk's prayer for God to judge the wickedness of the day. But it is the same frustration we are tempted to express toward our Heavenly Father when we're not able to perceive His care. Habakkuk continues his complaint in verse 3 by accusing God of standing by why destruction and violence happen all around And injustice abounds. Again, God just doesn't seem to care. Justice is perverted. The law is paralyzed through corruption. While those who care about God and his ways get the short end of the stick time and again. Actually, it's not that the. The righteous get the short end of the stick. It's that the wicked surround them with ill intent. So here's the question. Are we there yet in our day? How many things are you reluctant to do because of increased violence in our land? I mean, things that you wouldn't have thought twice about 10 years ago. But now you start to do something. Oh, better not say that. Oh, better not go there. Uh. I think most of us feel Habakkuk's pain. You have likely heard people saying something, and you may have said it yourself. I'm sure I've said it a time or two in my life. If God, actually I don't think I have, but that's, that's not because I'm better than you. It's just I think about it. If God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not sure such comments are helpful in our day. 
But Habakkuk would very much have understood the sentiment, or perhaps he would not, as, as we shall see. Maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he would understand that. Maybe he wouldn't. Nonetheless, there is violence in our land. And before I say what I'm about to say, please know that I am aware of my own sin as being or being as great as anyone's. I am aware that my temptations are not your temptations and vice versa. I know that we all struggle to be the one that God wants us to be. But I I must be faithful to the text. When I first began preparing to preach this message, I could not get away from the word violence in my mind and heart. It just was over and over and over. And I, 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 the first thing I, it, I come to is abortion. How can we not say that elective abortions are violence? They are. Let me quickly add, if you've had an abortion, and I'm sure someone here has, or encourage someone to do so, uh, you're no more a sinner than any of the rest of us. And God's forgiveness through Jesus is just as readily offered to you as it is to anyone else. Furthermore, he will free you from guilt when you repent of your sins <coughs> or acknowledge that you're a sinner before the Lord and put your trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation and forgiveness of sins. Jesus died in your place. He died for the worst sin you have ever committed. We cannot, though, refuse to call out violence in the land just because some of us have been guilty of violence in the past. Did you ever think you would see this day in our land where God's creation order of one man and one woman being united in marriage is disdained and people to desi desire to change their gender as readily as they change jobs or apartments? When we accept contemporary culture think, it can rapidly lead us to promote even unknowingly promote gender dysphoria by affirming it in other people. And that causes people, especially children, to regret and reject the gift of biological sex, the biological sex that the Lord has given them. If we've learned anything over the last 10 years, we have learned how quickly our thinking can change in the nation. Not only does such teaching promote an ungrateful spirit for God's good gifts to us, but it keeps us from being the blessing to others that God designed us to be by assigning us the sex that he did. Now, this is not to deny same-sex attraction, nor to deny the sense of unease that some have about their gender. But a spirit of gratitude is the first step in moving forward according to God's design. It could be, though. I've, I've thought it more the last month and a half than I ever have. And you probably think 
Some people have left because of what they perceive to be fear-mongering. I get it. I've never thought as much as I have in the last month and a half or so that the message to us as the church in America from Habakkuk is that it's too late. And we should begin serious preparation for judgment. And I don't mean survival prepping. I mean preparing our hearts and minds for suffering in a godly manner. And God has ordained, he has put us all in the time and place that we are. So it's not like, oh man, I wish I lived like you did and pops in the golden era. Look, God places us where he does. This life is a blip in eternity, but this life is important. And how we live this life And nothing, nothing, nothing would please me more than to be wrong about this. And I won't pound it all the time, but I'm just saying, folks, we need to know what we're going to do. Michael and Laura, my son and daughter-in-law and their family are going to go to Europe. He got a grant. He applied for a grant, and they're going to Europe next month, (laughs) and they're going to the theme of their his sabbatical is hospitality. They're going to different places. But one of the places they're most looking forward to is Corey Tim Boom's home. Corey Tim Boom, her father, all the others, because they lived in a different time than we do. They lived in a different place where most people have never had the certainty that we have had. But they they lived, they had a they had a prison bag packed. They knew the dangers of what they were doing. And they had a prison bag that they were ready to go at any point, at any time. They assumed that it may lead to that, and they were ready. And we need to prepare for suffering as well. And if it never comes, praise the Lord. I'm sure there were a lot of prison bags that were never taken out of the home during World War II in Europe. Habakkuk was impatient for God to act about the sin in the land. In verses 5 to 11, God replied to the prophet by saying in so many words, Oh, Habakkuk, I'm doing something. I'm raising up Babylon. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now, this is God speaking to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see, see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. What if one day you were telling God that he had better act and judge the sinful actions that are going on in America, and you were accusing him of standing idly by, what if he replied to you and said something like, oh, I'm doing something about the sin of this nation. Are you familiar with China? How about Russia, Iran? Have you heard of these nations? And you're like, what? He says, when they come, they will cover the land and the nonsense that you detest will stop. But judgment is going to fall on everyone. Before I go any further, see, this, this kind of stuff we're going to have to do all the way through this series for an entire year. 
Let me say, I am not claiming that America equates to Israel and that the promises and punishments that fell on, the the blessings and punishments that fell on the nation of Israel will fall upon us according to our worship of the Lord or lack thereof. It can be a serious exegetical error to assume that this is true. I'll talk more about this next week. But over time, we see patterns in Scripture that end up in our lives, in nations, in the church, in history. The storyline of Scripture is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's linear. But you see it played out cyclically many times too. Creation, fall, redemption at the cross, restoration in heaven one day. And it's like I've got a new life and then sin or medical issues or loss or relationship trauma. It feels like you've fallen all over again. And there's redemption out of that. And then someday it's at a level it's restored. It's like new creation and fall. And it just goes on and on. So the patterns are there. And much of Habakkuk rings true in our day, don't you think? Bert and I both led the last two weeks with the quote from John Woodhouse. We got to get over thinking, here's our only hope. Hope is not in man. It's only in the Lord. Verses 7 and 8. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. The Babylonians recognize no superior authority. They were the law. They were justice and dignity as far as they were concerned. It originated with them. You want to know what is just? The Babylonians ask. I'll tell you what's just. Hmm. Good thing we never think that in our land. (laughs) Good thing that we never think we're the ones who determine right and wrong. The destruction that Babylon would inflict on Judah would seemingly come out of nowhere with a ferocity that was almost beyond imagination. If you want to get a sense of what that destruction looked like in real time, read the book of Lamentations where Jeremiah stood amid the ruins of Jerusalem and poured out his lament. Verses 9 through 11. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. If, Yahweh said to Habakkuk, you are so quick to speak about violence, and if the people of the land 
want violence. They're enamored of it. I'll give you violence. For those of you who think, now look, I just don't mind seeing things go to pot because that means Jesus' return is near. You might want to think you're you might want to rethink your position or reposition your your thoughts. Nations rise and fall. And when they fall, sometimes they fall hard. Could it be that your eschatology is off just a bit and that Jesus' return is further in the distance than you can imagine? See, one of the big problems about hardcore communism is that the leaders want you to live a certain way, but they live another way. But are we not just as guilty as the, of the same sort of idea when we say, well, times have got to get worse, but I'm secure. I've got good money in, my, in the bank account. I've got a home that's paid for. I got this. I got that. And I'll be okay, but if it gets a lot worse for other people, that means Jesus' return is near. That's not a good way to think about Jesus' return, as we'll see over and over. It seems that God has designed every generation of believers to anticipate the Lord's return in their lifetime, as well we should, right? We, We should all be saying, yeah, Jesus is coming soon. But we must also prepare for the possibility of God's judgment in the land or on the land. Might I encourage you, and in fact even beg you, not to form conclusions about my own understanding of God's ways based on one statement from today. Especially one message from Habakkuk when we have barely scratched the surface of where we're going. We have three more books in this In in this book, which will lay the foundation for the entire series on eschatology. But in closing this morning, I want to share four points of application as we prepare for what lies in Habakkuk. Beginning with, God can handle your complaints, but be sure to put on your big boy and big girl britches when you accuse him of being silent. Well, I wanted to say it another way, but I just can't. I mean, I'm from Fuquay Verena. Come on. I'm really from Fuquay Springs before it became Fuquay Verena. This is the southern way of saying what God said to Job when Job questioned him. In Job 47 and 8, God responding to Job's complaint said, Dress for action like a man. That's all I'm saying there. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? God has made us in his image, and he understands our hearts. He understands our hurts. He's willing to hear our complaints. But in the end, our only recourse is to trust him, which will become abundantly clear next week. In the end, we find that it is not so much of so much us holding on to Jesus as it is Jesus holding on to us. Second, even as you guard against self-righteousness, it is right for you to call out sin in the land. Now, I really thought about rephrasing this point. It could 
easily be misunderstood. Yes, we should take a stand for righteousness as long as we have the freedom to do so. But we should remember that God is going to be the one to change people's hearts. We should not scream condemnation to those who don't know Jesus. This point is more about affirming God's righteousness and his ways when such affirmation is called for. It's about refusing to call evil good and good evil. As Rod Dreyer says, live not by lies. Don't say anything that you know God says is not true. Don't say that it's truth. If somebody says, well, I just think that two people who love each other, I don't care what their situation is, I think they ought to be together. Don't say, yeah, I know, I hear you, I, hear, I know what you mean. It's really hard not to say it. Maybe, for some of you. Just speak truth in the land. Always remembering that it's the Lord's mercy who saves you, that saves you. And third, God is different than you think. He is much greater than you can imagine. So ask him to give you a heart that trusts him. This is the heart of Habakkuk. It's the heart of the gospel. It is, frankly, the heart of scripture. Much more about this next week. But know that we are called to trust God even in times when life makes no sense at all. It goes to the heart of our last point. God has done something about injustice. Look to the cross of Jesus. Believers are surely called to do the work of justice in the land. We are to call out injustice. Yes, that's part of our responsibility. But we're also called to trust God, even when we are unjustly persecuted. And in fact, we are called to trust God without speaking up. 1 Peter chapter 2. Entrusting our souls to him who opened not his mouth, even though he was unjustly accused and treated. All sin was judged at the cross. And we're just waiting on the last day, the day of judgment, and it's going to fall out one way or the other. If we believe that Jesus died for our sins, then our sins are done. They're, they're paid for. It. They're gone. Nothing left. I love Tristan's prayer today at the end of the worship time. God's removed our sins no more. If we do not believe, then for eternity, we will receive God's judgment for those sins. And when you think, this is so fair, I can't stand it. God's saying, calm down. Trust me. I've got it all in hand. Believe me. This wrong has already been dealt with. And you will see one day how right it is.
He is the one who cares for us, protects us, speaks for us in the face of judgment. Thus, it is crucial that we trust God in the face of persecution so that when unbelievers observe the way that we suffer, they will see Jesus. When we look to the cross of Jesus, others are inclined to look in the same direction. Brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, your word is powerful. It tells us a lot of what we don't want to hear, but when we receive the bad news about our sin, the good news about Jesus, redemption is almost more than we can take in. Lord, um, we recognize that your word has a purpose. And if indeed this, the purpose of, uh, of these books that we're going to be studying is to remind us to trust you even when times get bad and they could be getting badly, bad one day soon. And we hope not. We pray not. We pray for revival in our land. We pray that you'll turn us away from the, the wickedness that really calls out for judgment. We're aware of it. And we're aware of how we as, as your people have, have in, in, in ways slid in that direction. We have slipped away from the place of righteousness to which you have called us. And so, Lord, whatever it is you need to do in our hearts, do it. Turn our eyes to you. Pray in the name of the one who has died and risen from the dead and ascended to heaven and, and lives ever to make intercession for us at your right hand. We pray in his name and long for his return. Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.